The following program is being brought to you on the World Talk Radio Network. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit worldtalkradio.com. The World Talk Radio Network, where the world comes to talk. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the World Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. The battlefield of Chickamauga was the first site of a Civil War battlefield monument, or at least among the first, and the battlefield itself was one of the early locations for Civil War battlefield memory location. Today, we'll talk with the current historian at Chickamauga National Military Park, We'll be talking with James Ogden III on Civil War Talk Radio. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel, where the world comes to talk. Are you ready to go green? You've asked, and we've heard you. Introducing the Green Talk Network. Environmental topics are at the forefront of our society, and the Green Talk Network is here to keep you up to date on the latest trends and innovations for the eco-conscious lifestyle. We'll help promote a variety of ideas on the environment, from global warming issues to how you can become more eco-friendly in your daily activities. Be a part of the solution, not the problem. Visit thegreentalknetwork.com and tune in to help spread the green. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you this beautiful Friday afternoon in October 2010 from the campus of East Carolina University in Greenville, North Carolina, home of the Pirates, but not speaking on behalf of the Pirates or their administration or the University of North Carolina system generally, or indeed anyone else but me, and I know my guest will likewise speak only for himself as always. Well, it is a beautiful fall weekend. The football season is underway. The Pirates are basking in having defeated in-state rival North Carolina State last week in overtime. Uh, An exciting game. But uh, time moves on. There's another game. Each one makes the previous one meaningless as we go forward. Uh, But we're not here to talk about football uh, this week or last week. Uh, so I should apologize for last week. We didn't have a show. Uh, Peter Carmichael, the new head of the Civil War Institute at Gettysburg College, had been scheduled to join us, and we had uh, uh, a extremely minor medical issue at his end, nothing uh, serious or to be worried about in any way, but it did interfere with our scheduled show, and we didn't uh, get that together. So I apologize to listeners uh, that we had a delay there. But uh, Dr. Carmichael will be back with us. He's rescheduled for January, so we'll find out what's going on at Gettysburg. Uh, So having missed one battlefield site, we'll have a a different one today as we talk about Chickamauga in just a moment. Uh, Next week, uh, Brian Miller joins us to discuss his new book about John Bell Hood. Uh, Looks very interesting, and we'll uh, get a new perspective on that, General. Then we've got James Oates coming up. Uh, His most recent book looks at Lincoln and Frederick Douglass side-by-side. These parallel uh, uh, comparisons of famous figures are periodically popular, and we'll we'll hear about the radical and the Republican. There will be no live show on the following Friday, November 12th. I will be in Raleigh, North Carolina, at the North Carolina Museum of History, Uh, giving a talk on the Western Campaigns of 1862. That's part of the North Carolina Literary and Historical Association joint meeting dedicated to the Civil War and Reconstruction in North Carolina. So I'll be on a uh, a program with Mark Bradley, who has been on this show before and knows more than I do about the war in this state. Uh, And we'll be on from 3.30 to 4.30 if you're anywhere in the southeast and want to see a fine history museum come by the North Carolina Museum of History. Our part of the program is free. Uh, at 2 o'clock, uh, Susie Barely, who was on the show earlier this year, will be talking, uh, as well as uh, other 
historians and authors uh, on Civil War topics. And if you stay for the whole night and actually want to pay some money, there's a dinner that evening, uh, and uh, Vernon Burton, Orville Vernon Burton, author of The Age of Lincoln, will be giving the uh, main address. Uh, he is a, a good friend of the show and has been on uh, at least once, uh, maybe more than that. So you'll get to see uh, him if you want to come by. But I'll be there that afternoon and I'd be happy to say hello if anyone cares to come by and visit the North Carolina Literary and Historical Association meeting. After that, uh, the November the 19th is the Lincoln Forum uh, in Gettysburg, and I'll be away at that. And then we've got the Thanksgiving weekend, so there will be a little break there. But we'll come back strong. Elizabeth Pryor will join us December 3rd to talk about uh, General Robert E. Lee. And uh, on December 10th, Jennifer Weber will be talking uh, to us about Copperhead. Uh, not the snakes, of course, but the anti-war northerners. So we've got a lot of interesting shows lined up. Uh, if you're interested in contributing to the show to help me purchase the occasional book that uh, we talk about, or if I got enough donations to fund a trip to Chickamauga, uh, feel free to donate to the show by uh, sending uh, contributions to CivilWarTR at AOL.com uh, through the miracle of PayPal. Go to the PayPal.com website, and they will uh, enable you to send money through the, uh, through the ether in that fashion. Uh, and if you do that, if you send uh, $25 to the show, I'll be happy to send you in return uh, a copy of All for the Regiment, the Army of the Ohio, 1861-62, and Did Lincoln Own Slaves? And other frequently asked questions about Abraham Lincoln. Uh, two for the price of one, a great bargain. And uh, I'll use your money to buy a different book to replace those on my shelf. So that'll work out well for everybody. One more housekeeping announcement, and this one falls under the classification of the coolest thing ever announced on Civil War Talk Radio. It is a website uh, a website dedicated to the show, produced by Mark Gaffney, a uh, longtime supporter of Civil War Talk Radio and done as a labor of love. It is at uh, the address Impediments of War, that's all one word, Impediments, spelled correctly, of War, dot heliohost.org, H-E-L-I-O-H-O-S-T, heliohost.org. So impedimentsofwar.heliohost.org. If you go there, you'll find for a number of the seasons, I think the first four seasons of the show as well as this season, links uh, from which you can uh, connect to the, the show's downloads on the, the main World Talk website that you're listening to right now. Uh, but it also includes the show titles, miraculously restored from the the old website uh, that was taken down uh, quite suddenly and, and without time to rescue the graphics or other things that I had painstakingly put on it for years. Uh, well, now uh, many of them are back. The, the show titles are back. If you want to know when was Jim McPherson on, you can go look it up and download or listen live to that show, uh, listen online to that show anytime you want. It's uh, a great help, I find, in keeping track of things, and I hope you'll enjoy it too. So uh, the show's heartiest thanks to Mark Gaffney for doing this, and I recommend you take a look at impedimentsofwar.heliohost.org uh, when you find the site with a graphic showing a group of Union uh, soldiers uh, standing around listening to a large jukebox. Uh, that was one of the little-known impediments of war, that they carried these with them on campaign so they could listen to Civil War talk radio. Um, that's the right website. So thanks again, Mark, for doing that. And uh, listeners, uh, you can finally keep track of which show is on when. Well, this show is on now, and uh, the subject, as I said, is the battlefield at Chickamauga, and I'm delighted to welcome to the show James Ogden III, uh, a historian uh, at Chickamauga. Uh, Jim, are you there? I certainly am, Jerry, and good to talk with you this afternoon. Well, it's, it's good to have you here. What is your official title at the park? Well, I am simply historian or staff historian um, at the, uh, the National Military Park. 
So when I started saying that in the introduction, I suddenly sort of clutched inwardly and thought, well, I, I think of you as a historian there, but maybe there's like some rangerific kind of title. But uh, <laughs> Well, they, uh, they still make me dress up um, like a park ranger, but... Um, um, I'm actually um, employed as the um, as the historian here, um, and actually in the the uh, government's um, historian job series. So, um, on the outside, uh, most people uh, would just think of me as another park ranger, but um, uh, but I am actually on the staff as the uh, as the staff historian, and supposed to be the uh, the staff resource uh, for uh, for other members of the uh, the staff here to turn to when they have a more in-depth question or are looking for material to uh, try to develop a new program um, or are considering a particular project and um, wondering how that might impact the resources here. Well, when I talk with my public history students about opportunities, uh, in my mind, the ideal job is, is pretty much your job uh, or the similar ones at other national military parks and battlefields. There aren't that many of them. How how did you come by your position? Well, I um, uh, was was interested in the uh, the Civil War as a kid, and um, and visiting Civil War battlefields as a kid and a teenager got the impression that um, uh, working for the National Park Service might not be a bad thing, and so I put myself through uh, through college um, and kind of made my own history program. Um, to focus on the American history through the Civil War period and American military history, thinking I should have a good grounding in that if I wanted to work at one of the National Park Service Civil War sites. Um, And only when I got out of college and actually started trying to get a job in the National Park Service did I find that the National Park Service really wasn't inclined in that, uh, that regard. Um, and um, and so it it actually took me a little while um, uh, via 13 years as a federal law enforcement officer and working at a prehistoric archaeological site for three years, seven months, eight days, 16 hours, and 40 minutes. Um, All of which and, you enjoyed, clearly. Uh, well, there's, uh, yes. Um, and then finally to uh, to Fredericksburg and Spotsylvania National Military Park, and then uh, and then back here. I, I actually first worked here in 1982 as a law enforcement officer, um, and then um, and then back here in November of 1988 to um, uh, to essentially serve as the historian. But um, uh, at that time, the position actually had a different title. So, um, but I've been here since, essentially serving as historian. Well, so a happy ending, but uh, a roundabout route uh, to get where you're going. That's that's right, and 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 mine actually has probably fewer stations in it um, or stops in it than some other people um, in the um, uh, who have have pursued this uh, this path as well. Um, but um, but that is uh, is kind of the nature of the uh, of the national park system. So, uh, well, you know, they're really. Uh, it, it, I guess uh, to listeners of the show will understand this analogy that you grow up watching uh, sports figures on TV and you think, boy, I'd like to play football. I'd like to play baseball when I grow up. That'd be a great thing to do for a living. Uh, but as you get a little older, you realize only a fraction of a fraction of a percent of the best athletes actually can play sports for a living. And the rest of us just play in rec leagues and eventually give it up altogether. Uh, to be a historian and not just read about the Civil War for pleasure once in a while, but to work at the battlefield and uh, have that be uh, one's daily uh, job, or I would say to uh, sit in an office here surrounded by Civil War books and teach Civil War uh, as as a, a way to make a living. It looks like a great thing, but not many of us are, are fortunate enough to have things break the right way that we get to actually do it. Well, that's that's right, and I do feel uh, feel fortunate um, um, in uh, in having been able to uh, to to work into uh, to this pe- this position and to uh, to work at a um, a Civil War site, a National Military Park that um, that has so much uh, opportunity and uh, a rich and vast um, story. Um, uh, I can tell you that my uh, my days are not um, not boring. So. Um, uh, you you might be surprised some of the things that I have to do during the uh, the day, but um, um, uh, my days certainly are um, are not boring, and um, um, and my uh, the end of my workday comes uh, far far faster than um, um, than I desire most days. So. 
Well, that, that's that's uh, delightful to hear, and and, and uh, wish it were true for all of us. Uh, I feel the same way, but not everyone has that privilege. What what is a surprising thing that you have to do in in a day, or you've had to do on a day? Well, um, you know, we uh, we operate um, uh, the battlefield itself, and also a um, a visitor center here, and um, and largely because of of the length of my tenure here. Um, I and the rotation of other staff members. Um, I have uh, have more institutional knowledge about uh, about some of the uh, the simple things here, like um, uh, how do you get to the place where you turn off that valve? Or as earlier today, um, one of our uh, audiovisual programs, a uh, fiber optic map was malfunctioning um, some, and had to show the uh, the new person who is responsible for that really. Um, uh, what to uh, to do to ad- address that uh, that issue? So um, uh, some days you might come here and find me with my little toolbox, and I'm behind the fiber optic map with a spotlight, um, uh, un- unwiring it and taking out one failed photoelectric switch and putting in a new one. So uh, that that is the world of public history. Uh, that, that is to be be a jack of all trades. Well, let's talk about the park uh, and its history. I, I started to say in the introduction it was the site of the first battlefield monument, and then as the words were coming out, I thought, no, Stones River had one, like during the war. Uh, Hazen's Brigade, I thought, that's, put one that's up That's right. And there, there actually was a, an even earlier one um, uh, that was short, what turned out to be short-lived on the, uh, the Manassas battlefield. The Confederates erected it um, in the fall of 1861, but um, when they abandoned the area in early 1862, and Union troops showed up. Um, they decided to uh, to express their desire uh, or express their opinion about the idea of Southern independence and um, remove that one from uh, from the inventory. So, um, mm. but this is the first national military park, the first time where really any significant area of fighting from the Civil War was actually set aside. Um, as a public memorial or place of commemoration, um, and one thing that uh, often is uh, is overlooked, the veterans also really envisioned this um, as an outdoor classroom as well, and uh, so it's a, a place of memorialization, commemoration, um, and education as well. But when you say education, do you mean like military education, like staff rides or civic education? Uh, well, um, both of those. Um, they envision this as a, uh, a place where future generations of citizens of our country could come and study and contemplate on the very ground where uh, the events unfolded. Some of, as they said, the uh, most remarkable maneuvers and most brilliant fighting in the War of the Rebellion. And, and they envisioned also very specifically the use of the, uh, the battlefield as that classroom um, for professional military um, development. And, and the, the words professional military study are right in the, uh, the piece of legislation that uh, Congress passed in August of 1890, creating uh, the National Military Park. Well, that was going to be my next question. What year? That was 1890, so that's the beginning of the, the federal involvement in acquiring and protecting battlefields? That is correct, yes. Um, there were a number of, um, uh, of monuments um, that had been, uh, been erected. Um, uh, a few um, national cemeteries had been created um, on the, uh, the ground of, of actual battle- battlefields, like the one at Shiloh and the, the one at Stones River. Um, but the first time that any significant portion of any battlefield um, was uh, was to be preserved was here at um, at Chickamauga. Uh, the veterans of of both sides. Um, uh, well, actually, I should probably start back just a, a little bit before that. Even in the immediate aftermath of the uh, of the battle, uh, participants on both sides recognized that something unique, significant, impactful, terrible, tragic. And instructive had uh, had unfolded here on those September days in 1863, um, and then carried on through the siege and battles for Chattanooga, and um, and there were people visiting these grounds as historic sites within just a matter of days of the conclusion of the battle. Um, they give a tour of the Chickamauga battlefield to Confederate President Jefferson Davis on October the 12th, 1863. And for that, the Confederate Army painted up signs marking important points on the battlefield, 
uh, for that uh, that tour of the ground by uh, by the president. And in December, George Thomas brought Ulysses S. Grant out to the Chickamauga battlefield um, to uh, to uh, to show him where uh, where this unique um, battle had unfolded. And uh, and Grant uh, even uh, made sure that he visited uh, the Lookout Mountain battlefield before leaving here in um, in December to then go on towards uh, his command of the military division of the Mississippi and eventually his command of all Union forces. So so both sides immediately recognized the importance of this historically and, and uh, that that is it. correct. Um, the, the they they recognized just how um, how vital this struggle for control of the gateway to the um, South's military industrial heartland was and um, uh, and began uh, visiting it as a historic site and that process continued in the years after the war and in the 1880s they begin to to recognize changes in the landscapes and then conceive this idea of of not only erecting monuments but also saving some of the actual ground and in September of uh, 1889 there was a um, a barbecue um, involving veterans of uh, of both sides and a uh, a mass meeting where um, they uh, they formed the Chickamauga Memorial Association to then lobby Congress to create a national military park here, and and uh, another purpose was not just simply historic preservation, and, and in fact, really that was uh, was was somewhat secondary to the primary purpose of showing reconciliation and reunification. Uh, the United States economy in the post-Civil War period was uh, was growing by leaps and bounds, and our country was getting ready to step out onto the world stage to rival England, France, Germany, and Spain for uh, for empire. And um, and one of the things that it was was felt necessary to do in this new nationalistic um, uh, feeling pervading much of the country was to show that. Once divided, the country was now reunited, and and this campaign offers that with the victory uh, by the Confederates at Chickamauga, but the overall victory of the Union Army in the campaign and the Union victories on Lookout Mountain and Missionary Ridge. Well, that that uh, uh, locates us historically in, in when and why this was created. We're going to take a short break, and we'll come right back. We're talking today with Jim Ogden. He's a historian at Chickamauga National Military Park. We'll be back in just a moment on Civil War Talk Radio. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Life navigation sounds simple enough, but it is really about harnessing the power of your own intuition to focus on the positive things in your life rather than the negative. Host Augustina Torgelson will help you to lead a happier life with less stress. Augustina's vision is to see a world of one community living in harmony with nature and earth. Embark on the journey of self-exploration and new opportunities. Tune in to Life Navigation every Tuesday at 8 a.m. U.S. Pacific Time on the World Talk Radio. Radio Variety Channel. Are you looking for tips, tricks, secrets, and techniques that you can use anywhere, anytime, on virtually any problem? Tune in to Magic at Your Fingertips with EFT virtuoso Teresa Bolin. You are a divine manifestation of love and light. Take back control of your life and create the life that you want using EFT, emotional freedom techniques. You'll overcome the obstacles that stand in the way of living your heart's desire. Magic at Your Fingertips airs live at 6 a.m. U.S. Pacific Time, 9 a.m. Eastern and 10 p.m. in Japan on the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Listen. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with James Ogden III, historian at the Chickamauga National Military Park. Uh, in our break there, we heard a few uh, commercials, as we do here, uh, for other programs on World Talk Radio, and I'm always uh, the entertained is perhaps not the word, but struck by the 
juxtaposition of the uh, the new age uh, peace and love that some of these shows offer and the carnage that we are returning to discuss here, in particular that at uh, Chickamauga in September 1863. Uh, in our first segment, we talked a little bit about the history of the park. And Jim, you mentioned by 1890 when uh, Congress passed the legislation establishing this institution, the United States is moving into a new uh, world, uh, the North and South are reuniting uh, after the end of Reconstruction, and uh, the Chickamauga is an appropriate symbol because it's a Confederate victory on the battlefield, but of course the war itself is a Union victory, so both sides can take pride in, in the location. But let me throw out that uh, a lot of recent scholarship, uh, David Blight in particular, has argued that this moment of reunification and, and triumph comes at the cost of putting aside the memories of the political a- aspects of the war. That is, the uh, the black veterans are forgotten, the uh, former slaves entirely are forgotten. Right, and, or, and, not, and not only that, even just the uh, the, the very causes, what the, what the war was actually over, um, you read the uh, the speeches given by uh, by veterans both north and south at the big formal dedication of the National Military Park in um, September of 1895 and and they say very clearly that um, that we agree to disagree uh, on the uh, the causes of the war and uh, and this of course also allows for that uh, writing out of the history um, the uh, the role of the, uh, the the black veterans and and even um, of the, the African Americans more largely um, in the actual conduct of the war. Well, let, let me uh, skip to the present momentarily, and then we'll come back and talk about uh, the battle, incidentally, as we go. Certainly, but uh, in the last uh, decade or so, uh, maybe it's been longer than that now. Uh, but the National Park Service. Uh, decided to reinterpret many of its battlefields uh, in a quite controversial step to try to move forward from that interpretation of 1890 that, well, it was just a big misunderstanding, but we all respect each other now, uh, and then and, and focusing exclusively on the battles as battles, which brigade went where. The Park Service moved to add some political interpretation to various battlefields to point out why the armies were at Chickamauga or Shiloh at Gettysburg, and there was a lot of resistance uh, among some people in the Civil War community. How did that play out at Chickamauga? When that, when did that happen, and how did it go? Well, um, the, that um, that issue to to broaden the interpretation and to uh, to to make the story more inclusive um, really begins in the. Um, um, uh, just after the mid um, 1990s and the, and the latter 1990s, and then it continues on into the early 2000s. Um, we, by that time, um, uh, partly by um, uh, by by direction, by specific um, decisions and and purpose, somewhat by uh, by accident, we already were uh, were quite a ways down the uh, the road in that regard. Um, in 1989 and 1990, our friends of uh, Chickamauga and Chattanooga National Military Park group had raised um, uh, more than $3 million for an addition to the Chickamauga Battlefield Visitor Center. And uh, while much of that was around a, a, spe- a specific audiovisual program, which um, did include um, a lot more calls and context than you would have um, have typically gotten at a National Park Service Civil War site at that time. One of the other things that that addition uh, included was a pretty detailed timeline of the the period between 1860 and um, and 1865. And um, and in that, not only were the military events interpreted. Um, and this was a timeline that was literally done on uh, on two walls in a large um, exhibit uh, room. Um, but uh, not only were the military events addressed, but also significant uh, political, social, and economic events as well. And so we were already working towards placing the the Battle of Chickamauga and the battles for Chattanooga and the campaign. Um, for Chattanooga overall, in that uh, that four-year, or in as the exhibit was laid out, five, almost six-year um, span of our country's history to show how the two armies got here, 
how important this was, what the impacts were, and where the two armies went from here, uh, not just militarily, but also in some of the political and social aspects um, as well. So here, when we then entered into a new exhibit um, uh, process in the um, uh, late uh, 1990s, we simply expanded on that even more and, and added an element to, uh, to take the timeline, basically, from the, the, uh, the, uh, from the American Revolution to the, um, to the creation of the Constitution and then through the sectional contest, of the 1830s, 40s, and 50s. So um, I, I don't know that it was as, quite as contentious here um, as it might have been at some other points, because we were already doing some of that. Um, and um, now there certainly were some visitors who, um, who found some of that, um, uh, that troubling, although they uh, much more found uh, troubling the use of United States flags extensively. Uh, but that is actually reminiscent of what the veterans did in the 1890s. So, um, what, what, what do you mean by they were troubled by flags? Um, in uh, in the entry lobby, um, we uh, we attempted to uh, to create the um, the illusion or the impression of a uh, a veterans uh, reunion hall or a, a a pavilion where the uh, the veterans were meeting um literally uh, modeling it somewhat off of uh, photographs of of such halls or uh, or pavilions at some of those events and with that um spirit of reconciliation and reunification so pervading the veterans activities uh the veterans used almost exclusively in those meetings, particularly where uh, there were veterans of both sides uh, participating, they used the United States flag. Not um, uh, the, the Confederate flag was uh, was rarely seen, um, and it was was the the United States flag of the late 19th century um, that was the uh, the, the common um, symbol throughout the, um, uh, the the hall. The the great um, Speaker stand at Chickamauga in 1895 was uh, draped exclusively in red, white, and blue bunting and the United States flag. Um, when the Georgia Monument was uh, was dedicated um, in 1899, um, what um, what mask the uh, the bronze figures around the base was not simple cloth, um, was not a Georgia flag, was not a Confederate flag. It was a giant United States flag, which was then pulled away. Um, to reveal those bronze figures as part of the dedication um, ceremony. So the, uh, some, uh, many visitors uh, failed to, uh, to recognize um, and appreciate uh, that, um, that sense of reconciliation and reunification that, um, that the veterans purposefully were creating in creating the National Military Park here. So they were looking for a Confederate flag uh, to share the spotlight. That's that's correct, um, and oh. uh, and they they uh, they felt that um, the uh, the flags displayed um, should be uh, should be fifty fifty um, uh, Union and uh, and Confederate, um, but um, uh, you know that, uh, that the uh, that certainly does not match um, uh, the what the veterans themselves were doing in the uh, in the eighteen nineties um, and. You know, you you show them the, uh, the the historic photographs of these halls and pavilions, and even the Georgia Monument with the uh, giant United States flag uh, masking the uh, the bronze figures, and it's all just um, um, kind of stupefying to them um, that uh, you know it's just not uh, not what any of them expected, but it certainly is uh, very much a part of the history. Yeah, and and one of the, if it's good enough for the Confederate veterans, it ought to be good enough for their great-grandchildren that yes uh, that's right uh, now I, I can't help asking you this you mentioned the timeline and as a former museum uh, employee uh, when people walk into a room they tend to turn to the right uh, and go around uh, if they walk into a blank exhibit room they'll turn to the right almost by instinct at least in our culture. Yes. But we read from left to right. So if you turn to the right and your timeline goes along, you're reading against the timeline. But if you put it so that you read as you walk from left to right, then the timeline has to start on the left side of the room. Yes. How did you do your timeline? 
Well, our, our timeline started on the um, on the left side of the uh, the room, and that was uh, was uh, was always a problem. Um, even still is um, is today. Um, but the uh, the the room is um, is very large, um, and um, um, and so there are uh, are now actually um, uh, two other exhibits um, in the um, in the room with that uh, that timeline. And so, yes, people do um, have a kind of a tendency to uh, to hit the timeline in pieces. Um, but I uh, I think when you stand out there um, long enough and watch, I think most people, um, if they um, if they hit it first, um, say in uh, early 1863, they pretty quickly realize that hey, this thing really starts over here to the left somewhere, mm-hmm. and um, and you'll see them make their way over there and then kind of scan along it from uh, from left to right. So um, also this room is immediately outside of the theater where this uh, this once very elaborate audiovisual program was shown and um, and that the entrance to that um, theater is to the left of the room as you enter and so uh, that helped draw people over to that left side as well but um, uh, we we do have that problem um, um, in our main exhibit hall, we've had to put up a um, a very large green and white sign that says "Start here" with an arrow pointing <laughs> to the left. And it, it it may or may not work for some people. That's uh, right. It, it, you can't win them all with that. Yeah, but, we, well, no. we actually um, uh, kicked out the last exhibit um, by the uh, the door, which is the uh, the entrance and the exit. Kicked it out about um, almost eighteen inches. Um, so that you literally are looking at the back of it when you first walk through the door opening, um, and um, and that has helped um, encourage people to go left as opposed to right. So yeah. Now the you mentioned that one of the things unique about the park is it was the first place where land was set aside not just for memorial purposes, but with the idea of protecting and, and preserving some of this original battlefield land. Um, how big is the park, and what, what percentage of the battlefield is, does the park cover? Well, on the Chickamauga battlefield today, we've got 5,300 acres. Um, that is not all that the veterans originally desired. Uh, when the veterans first conceived this idea in, um, in 1889 and, and, um, and got their, uh, their fellow veterans and comrades in Congress to first introduce the, the legislation, the veterans desired a 10,000-acre battlefield. Congress eventually authorized a 7,600-acre battlefield, but the money appropriated by Congress for land acquisition was only sufficient to buy the little more than 5,000 acres. So we don't have as much as what the veterans wanted uh, uh, preserved, but we do have about 75% of the main core battlefield, the area of the heaviest and in the end, most decisive fighting, um, and um, and so um, you you do um, you do do get to the majority of the key points within the um, the, the battlefield Chickamauga Battlefield Park unit um, as it is today. Um, now on the Chattanooga battlefields, Lookout Mountain, the Missionary Ridge, the, uh, it's almost um, the exact opposite. Um, we have only about one uh, percent of those battlefields. Uh, despite now owning um, uh, over 2,000 acres of the Lookout Mountain battlefield. But um, uh, because of the elevation of Lookout Mountain itself and Orchard Knob and, and uh, Missionary Ridge, places where the veterans bought small parcels of land, which they named reservations, it is still possible to go to those high points and look out over what is now mostly an urban landscape, but still get some good understanding of how uh, the battles in November of 1863 unfolded. Um, total, the National Military Park today has 9,000 acres in it, um, scattered around the uh, the Chattanooga area um, in anywhere from four to 18 parcels. And if you want to get into one of the uh, most endless debates amongst the staff, um, that is how many units there are to the National Military Park. So. Hmm. Uh, now, the, the in Chickamauga fought in September 1863 leads to the Union Army retreating into Chattanooga and being besieged there, and then the Confederate 
troops are on the high ground outside, as you mentioned, Missionary Ridge and, and uh, Lookout Mountain, and, and eventually displaced from those in November. So that that's all one uh, combined Chickamauga and Chattanooga National Military Park. That is correct, yes. The, the but, veterans really envisioned um, a, a, a National Military Park that was commemorating the, uh, the entirety of the 1863 campaign for Chattanooga. And the uh, my recollection of visiting the area is that, as you said, the 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 latter ones, ones near Chattanooga, really have been uh, surrounded by development. That you can go up on Missionary Ridge, but there's sort of houses everywhere. That's correct. Yes, uh, uh, but uh, because of the the vantage or the potential vantage um, uh, from several of those reservations, uh, it is still possible to um, to. Um, to gain some understanding of how the battle unfolded, and even though the veterans knew that they uh, were not going to acquire any real significant acreage on the Missionary Ridge battlefield, they did buy the right-of-way for and maintained for several decades a road along the crest of Missionary Ridge, and in that right-of-way erected monuments, markers, tablets, and plaques to mark where the different units were engaged in the Battle of Missionary Ridge. And though, uh, even though the, uh, that road is no longer a part of the National Military Park and is today just a city residential street, um, still standing in the right-of-way of it um, are the majority of those monuments, markers, tablets, and plaques. Hmm. Now, in, 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 in Chick- the Chickamauga section, on the other hand, you really can't immerse yourself in, in land where all, as far as you can see uh, through the woods, it's all Civil War era. Um, that is correct, um, except the, the density of the woods on the Chickamauga battlefield today is generally much greater than it was at the time of the, uh, the battle. Because of the open-range grazing uh, that was uh, practiced um, in most of the United States at the time, uh, certainly in the southeast, uh, the density of the woods in 1863 here was, uh, was far less than what it is today. Uh, at the time of the battle, you could see 150 or 200 yards down through the woods, but that visibility quickly diminished once the soldiers began to fire and the overhead forest cover trapped and held that smoke in um, and reduced the visibility to as little as the, um, the 40 or 20 or 30 yards that um, uh, many of the veterans uh, or many of the soldiers or participants describe um, at the time. Now, uh, I hear the music that says we're going to take a short break, so we'll do that now. Uh, we'll talk more about developments at the Chickamauga National Military Park with its historian, James Ogden III. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. We'll be right back on Civil War Talk Radio. Talk Radio Variety Channel, where the world comes to listen and talk. To succeed in life today, you have to respond well to change and be willing to take chances. On Star Style, Be the Star You Are, the Oprah of the Airwaves, Cynthia Bryan and her sidekick, daughter Heather Brittany, deliver lessons of success spanning the generations with live interviews with trailblazers, authors, and experts. Join Cynthia Bryan and Heather Brittany on the Power Hour, Star Style, Be the Star You Are, every Thursday from 3 to 4 p.m. Pacific, 6 to 7 p.m. Eastern on World Talk Variety. For positive, uplifting, life-changing talk radio it's star style be the star you are you're listening to the world talk radio variety channel Welcome back to 
Civil War talk radio with some unaccustomed uh, swinging 20th century music in the background. We come back to the third segment with Jim Ogden, historian at the Chickamauga National Military Park. We were discussing the the park, <coughs> excuse me, in our second segment and uh, what it encompasses, what it looks like today. Jim, you said the, the tree cover is much thicker today because uh, there are no wild hogs or, well, not necessarily wild. There are no hogs of any sort roaming around, uh, no no cows, no cattle eating uh, the underbrush. At Gettysburg, there's a, a very high-profile program to cut trees down uh, and make the park look more like it did in 1863. A lot of people were somewhat uh, shocked to see the National Park Service clear-cutting their own land, but uh, Civil War aficionados are just, uh, over the moon about how much better Gettysburg looks now with the, the trees cut back to its 1863 appearance. Is there any movement in that direction at your place? Well, there there is, but on a, a much more limited um, uh, basis. Um, and and here on the Chickamauga battlefield, while we do have um, have some um, uh, areas that in 1863 were field, but which are presently wooded. Um, in, in, in other places, we actually have some areas that are today fields that need to be wooded. And, and one of the things that we've been doing in the last um, uh, now almost 15 years is actually um, uh, starting to plant trees in some of those areas that, um, that were once uh, or what, that were wooded in 1863 and which are now presently open. So not only have we taken down some trees, but we've also been planting some trees. Our biggest challenge here is the density of the vegetation. And in addition to the absence of the, the livestock to eat the low-growing and low-hanging vegetation, there's also a plant here, Chinese privet in particular, which is um, an exotic uh, a non-native that is um, uh, its density in the understory is increasing in the now uh, 28 and a half years that I have um, have uh, been seeing uh, the Chickamauga battlefield um, uh, initially off and on and now um, on a regular basis for the last two decades I've seen that um, density of privet um, increase dramatically and um, and so in, a, in many places where we are now doing some landscape uh, rehabilitation, where we are addressing the density of the understory, we're actually attacking um, that exotic species, Chinese privet, not only to restore the density of forest to the 1863 character, but if we don't eradicate that in, um, in another generation or two of trees, the only trees growing, or the, I shouldn't say trees, the only thing growing in, in many areas is going to be that Chinese privet. As those stands get dense enough, they choke out all of the other uh, vegetation. And um, as the last of the mature trees die off, um, all you would have left is, uh, is these stands of, of privet. So, um, so we've been, um, been doing that. Um, and in the last two years, um, on a um, on some key portions of the battlefield, we have um, have thinned the vegetation to something much more like it was in 1863, and it is it's it is having um, um, uh, some very positive uh, benefits for our visitors' experience here. Uh, for one thing, um, because you can now see down through the woods, it is bringing some sections of the battlefield visually closer together than uh, you would have had, would have believed otherwise um, walking some of the trails through the uh, the dense forest. Uh, I'm just fascinated by this this aspect. Uh, there are so many things one doesn't think of when visiting uh, sites until somebody points them out, and having to maintain and resist uh, against uh, invasive species is, is just one of those. Now, you mentioned the, the visitor experience improving from this. If someone has never been uh, to Chickamauga, what do, what advice can you give them? Uh, where, do, where do you stay? Uh, how long do you spend at the park? Uh, if, if someone's uh, what's what's the nearest big airport? Uh, well, uh, we the uh, the Chickamauga Chattanooga National Military Park is in the uh, the Chattanooga metropolitan area. 
Um, and um, and the, the Chattanooga metro area is a total of about 500,000 uh, people, and we're, uh, because we are, um, are here at this important historic doorway, gateway, passageway, it's the junction of, um, of three interstate highways, I-75, I-24, and I-59. And so much of the population of the eastern half of the United States can potentially uh, make a, a relatively easy drive to um, to the Chattanooga area, and um, and there are no end um, to uh, to hotels in the uh, the greater Chattanooga area, in part because of uh, that the intersection of those three interstate highways. Um, the the uh, the hotels um, have have sprung up here in in great numbers um, to facilitate the travel of folks um, in, in various directions. So there are a lot of choices potentially as places to stay in the, in the immediate Chattanooga area, and you can be um, anywhere from, from 10 minutes to 30 minutes um, uh, from the battlefield, but, um, but that, um, even that 30 minutes time can be a relatively easy drive. If you wanted to fly in, um, there, there are air connections into uh, to, to Chattanooga, um, and the airport board would be um, um, upset with me if I didn't say that you could fly into Chattanooga, but uh, the Chattanooga airport is not um, one of your larger um, airports, uh, but we are just um, two to three hours away from the, uh, the, the Nashville and Atlanta airports, which, uh, which give you um, a greater, uh, greater uh, variety of flights. Um, so... Um, and as to how much time you want to spend here, um, you, you certainly need, um, just on the Chickamauga battlefield, you certainly need um, two to four hours' time to, to really get um, uh, some grasp of, of what unfolds here, some time in the visitor center, and then um, uh, take one of the, uh, the tours, either either the, the basic uh, driving tour in the brochure or, more ideally, purchase one of the uh, audio tours that's available in the bookstore. Um, and then if you uh, want to spend a little more time, uh, do a little reading ahead of time, get a couple of the, um, the, the tour guides that have been, uh, been published, uh, you can easily spend days here on the battlefield. There are a 1,000 monuments, markers, tablets, and plaques scattered across the 5,300 acres of the Chickamauga battlefield. And you'd need about uh, two weeks of eight-hour days to get around all thousand of those commemorative features if you wanted to try to do that. Yeah, so you can you can set yourself up there for a while. You right. mentioned guidebooks. Um, and I'm looking at my shelf here, and I see uh, Matt Spruill's book from the Army War College series, uh, David Powell's recent maps of Chickamauga. Uh, what what books would you recommend? Uh, well, uh, Matt Spruill's um, uh, Army War College Chickamauga uh, Battlefield Guide uh, certainly has some value and, and benefits, um, but the, the 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 tour that's kind of mapped out in there is about a sixteen hour tour, and so. Um, <laughs> You, um, uh, you would either need to do a little bit of reading ahead of time to, uh, to truncate it to the time that you think you'd be able to, uh, to commit to it, um, or just uh, commit to that, uh, that 16-hour uh, timeline, which a lot of folks don't, um, don't have. I, so in the end, I kind of recommend that as, uh, as just a source to use to draw some material from um, about particular stops or parts of the battle that you might be really interested in. What I really recommend to folks right now is Steve Woodworth's um, Chickamauga Battlefield Guide, published by the University of Nebraska Press. Uh, the basic tour in that is about uh, six hours, and then um, he has some alternate um, or additional stops that you can make to, to lengthen it. He also has uh, some stops for, uh, for parts of the Chattanooga battlefields. Um, which uh, are, uh, is very valuable as well. And, and if indeed you do have, say, a, a, a day or a day and a half or even two days, um, I still recommend to, uh, to make use of Steve Woodworth's guide and then supplement it with information from Matt Spruill's um, two books, because uh, Spruill has also done one on Chattanooga now, mm -hmm. um, and... 
uh, and Dave Powell's maps of Chickamauga certainly are uh, are really valuable in helping you to uh, to kind of visually understand what unfolded in uh, in particular phases of the battle. What about uh, uh, narrative books to read? If somebody's going to read one book on Chickamauga, uh, what, what's your recommendation? Well, I, um, I I qualify that somewhat because, as as you certainly know, uh, this campaign and and this battle is uh, is complex enough that um, you really need to uh, to kind of build your knowledge of the campaign. Um, as you go along, the the standard book length treatment of the Battle of Chickamauga right now is Peter Cousins' This Terrible Sound, and and that volume has some some real value and some real benefits, and it's it's a, a very worthwhile tool. But um, uh, given its length, uh, if you're not already familiar with the general outlines of the uh, of the battle. You can easily get lost in um, this terrible sound, and so I recommend starting with uh, with some things that are a little shorter, more concise, that allow you to get a good mental framework of what the outline of the the larger battle is, and then start digging deeper. Um, Steve Woodworth's Six Armies in Tennessee is a very fine treatment of the overall campaign for Chattanooga, and I, I really recommend that to, uh, to folks um, as kind of a starting place. The, the Battle of Chickamauga is not um, uh, related in as much detail, but it is certainly related, connected to the overall campaign, and in a way that allows you to get a good grasp of the, um, of the bigger picture, the bigger uh, initiatives, motives, um, and and events, uh, without getting lost in the um, in the weeds, and then start picking up the more detailed things. Um, another source that um, that is just really outstanding, that is a little more difficult to uh, to come by. Um, the the real expert on this uh, campaign for Chattanooga and the uh, the Battle of of Chickamauga is a gentleman who um, is, is an instructor for our United States Army at, um, at Fort Leavenworth, uh, the director of the Combat Studies Institute, Dr. William Glenn Robertson. Um, I know nothing about the, uh, the Battle of Chickamauga in comparison to what Glenn does. Um, and, and Glenn produced um, a couple of years ago for Blue Gray Magazine a five-part series that covers the movements of the Army of the Cumberland over the Cumberland Mountain, over the Tennessee River and the Sand and Lookout Mountain Ranges, their occupation of Chattanooga, and and then the uh, the battle itself um, spread over five issues of, of that magazine. And and parts one, two, and three, which cover all of the movements leading up, to, uh, well, basically from August 16th to September the 19th, uh, no one has treated that aspect of the campaign um, to the depth and, and, and accuracy that, um, that Glenn did in those parts one, two, and three. And Do you, by any chance, have those magazines at your, uh, the, at your visitor center? Right. The, the bookstore um, is selling uh, back issues of them, and you can also acquire them from, um, from Blue Gray Magazine itself. Um, you can go online um, and find their website um, and um, and order them either online or or get the uh, the phone number and call them directly. Um, and um, and those particularly parts one, two, and three are just um, just really really valuable. Um, and and some people who um, who who thought they knew. Uh, the campaign leading up to the Battle of Chickamauga, and um, and um, you know, who thought they had a good grasp and understanding of it, um, have have read those three issues and um, and said, you know, um, I really had no idea whatsoever uh, what was really involved in how those two armies came to clash there in the valley of West Chickamauga Creek. Well, that sounds like I might be one of those people. Jim, unfortunately, we have uh, much too soon run out of time, but I want to thank you very much for being on the show and sharing your 
knowledge of the Chickamauga National Military Park, and uh, you have whetted my appetite. I cannot wait for the next opportunity to get out there and see it, and uh, you and I can talk some more. So thank you for being on the show. Very good. I'm glad to have been able to, uh, to be on with you. Thank you. And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the World Talk Radio Network. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit worldtalkradio.com. The World Talk Radio Network, where the world comes to talk. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the World Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.